as I spent time in Philippians uh, the last couple of weeks, I was struck again with how many uh, well-known verses there are in Philippians, how much of the book is um, famous and well-known and, and quotable. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a great promise. Later in, in chapter 1, for, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The whole, the whole passage in chapter 2 uh, that begins with verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that, those verses, that paragraph ends with, therefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, much of chapter 3, which I won't read again um, um, right now, uh, later in chapter two, I don't want to skip over, uh, Paul famously says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you both to will and to do both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It seems like all of chapter four is, is well known. Um, verse, verse four of chapter four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice two verses later. Do not be anxious, careful, the King James says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The very next verse, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The very next verse, finally, brothers, whatsoever things are true, whatever is honorable, and you know the rest. Maybe, maybe the most famous, we saved the best for last, the most famous verse in all of Philippians, at least among athletes who have Twitter accounts, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's not, uh, we're not going to, I'm not preaching on that today, but it's not talking about athletic achievement. And honestly, there are probably a, a few more in Philippians that are uh, equally well known that I'm, that I'm not reading right now. But you get the idea, and, I, and I'd like this morning to take a few minutes and look at a few of those uh, fairly well-known verses from chapter 3. Look back, if you would, at, at chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Those are the verses we're going to look at. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that. When you read, I press on that I might lay hold of. And then a verse later, forgetting those things that are behind, reaching toward those things that are ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I wonder what you think Paul is, is saying when he repeats, I press on. You've heard those verses before. I, I hope you have. What is Paul talking about? He says he hasn't attained or apprehended or laid hold of something, but he presses on. He's reaching out for something, a prize. He says these things twice. What's he talking about? What hasn't he obtained? What does it mean to press on? And what, what's he pressing on for? 
And ultimately, of course, this morning, what we want to get to is what's the challenge to us? Those are the initial questions I had when I, I paused to think about these verses over the last couple of weeks, um, which I had, I had read and, and heard a bunch of times before, probably like many of you. So to, to begin to gain some insight into these verses, let's first step back for just a couple minutes and look at the broader context of, of these verses. Always a good idea to look at the context, right? And, and I think we'll do a little extra work here because it's always hard, unlike Pastor Tom, who's preaching through Romans bit by bit, it's hard to jump into the middle of a, of a book or a passage, a letter, and uh, just pick out a few verses. You'll notice that our verses come at the end of a longer section that seems to begin with a warning. Look back at the beginning of chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is no trouble. It's not tedious. And for you, it is safe. And then he says, beware of dogs. Beware of evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. What, what's Paul talking about uh, by, those, by those three descriptors? And the clue we need, the best clue, is that term translated here, the mutilation. A number of translations add a couple more words in there. The ESV says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The folks that Paul is warning his readers of here are the same people he much more directly and explicitly battles in his letter to the Galatians. Maybe you're a little bit familiar with, with Galatians. The term we use for these people is Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians who were apparently dismayed at the Gentilization of the church, right? All of these pagan Gentiles getting saved. They're concerned about that, and they were preaching that historic Jewish customs like circumcision were necessary for salvation. They were preaching that, oh yeah, sh sure, you should believe in Jesus and, and all that stuff, but you really need to obey the law as well. And circumcision, as we see in the Old Testament, as Paul talks about in, in many different places, circumcision is the key symbol of this, the key symbol of being a good Jew. And to these people, the key symbol of being a good Christian now, the key symbol of being one of God's true people. This is why Paul uses the term mutilation here in Philippians 3. He's deriding their teaching that pagan Gentiles who come to Christ need to be circumcised and to follow Jewish laws. The heart of their error, of course, is that they were preaching a works righteousness. We would call this legalism. You should picture, I picture these people as the Pharisees uh, that, that Jesus uh, opposes constantly in his ministry, Pharisees who have now entered the church. Let's take one minute, just a minute, and look at a couple verses in Galatians, uh, which will help us. You can flip there if you want, or, or you can just listen. Um, Galatians 1.6, Paul starts by telling the church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And he says, in the next verse, he says, not that there is another gospel, there's only one gospel, but you're following people who are distorting the true gospel. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 of Galatians, Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. He's making a claim about himself. He, he's a Jew. We're not Gentiles. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he continues, verse 16, so we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because, here it is again if you missed it 10 words earlier, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Chapter 3 begins with, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? A couple verses later, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having been initially justified by grace through faith, are you thinking that you'll now be sanctified, be made holy through your works? Verse 10 of chapter 3, he ramps it up even more. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then chapter 5, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And the implication there, of course, is that if you have to keep the whole law, you're in trouble because nobody can do that. You're cursed. And the passage culminates with, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Uh, a pretty good window into how seriously Paul takes these teachings. This was a big deal. The true gospel was at stake. A contingent of so-called Christians were preaching that people needed to keep the law, to follow a list of rules, to honor these special days, to eat this and not that, in order to be saved. And it seems people were being led astray. Gentile believers were getting circumcised. It was happening. It appears that these false teachers were gaining a following, and they posed a real danger to the church. And of course, as with all legalists who are working for their salvation, these people were self-righteous, right? They were proud of their works, just like the Pharisees. They prided themselves on their credentials and their achievements. They looked good. They kept the rules that they had made, and they wanted you to know that they did. Their teaching was attractive in a way, especially perhaps for those coming from pagan Gentile backgrounds with lives full of gross sin. I mean, that's a separate message, but the appeal, the potential appeal of a rigid works-based uh, religion to those who have come out of, of, of sin. In any case, this, this all is what gives rise to Paul's warning at the beginning of Philippians 3 and the discussion that follows. The three terms he uses for them in verse 2 are highly offensive. Uh, you don't have to be a Jew to get a feel for when he calls them dogs and evildoers and the mutilation. Those are, are uh, fighting words. Dogs was the term in Jewish culture for those outside the community, those who are unclean, Gentiles, Gentile dogs. These teachers, Paul is saying, who gloried in their superficial holiness, who considered themselves the closest to God, most acceptable, the most in, Paul says they're out. They're dogs. They're unclean, godless pagans. It's pretty offensive. These who thought they were so righteous, they went above and beyond to be righteous. They were doing God's work. Paul calls them evil doers. They were doing wickedness, not God's work. And circumcision, their greatest source of pride, the, the symbol of their commitment and God's acceptance, this is the surest sign that they actually have no share 
among God's people. Their circumcision was not a symbol of being God's chosen people as it was for Israel. For them, it was just physical mutilation. And, and probably what Paul has in mind here, probably what he's alluding to by using this term is pagan ritual mutilation. That was part of their idol worship. So super offensive, just the complete other end of the spectrum from what they imagined for themselves. And you can see what follows this. Um, I don't think I need to belabor it because it's so well known. But Paul says, we who worship by God's spirit and glory in Christ, we are the, the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And we put no confidence in the flesh. And look, if anyone has reason to put confidence in their own selves, it's me. The surprising statement. He Then he goes on with this list, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, they were the most zealous law keepers. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. How could you be more zealous than that? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's saying if anyone could have achieved righteousness by themselves through their own efforts, through their maybe credentials by birth, their achievements, their commitment, their work ethic, their zeal, it would have been him. And of course, you know what comes next, the big change in verse seven. But whatever things were gained to me, these things that were supposedly advantages, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of everything, but count it as rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And then he ends with that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, I hope you get a, a glimpse. I know we rushed through a whole bunch of verses, but I hope you get a glimpse of the stark contrast that Paul is trying to make between himself and these false teachers. They gloried in a bogus righteousness that they thought they could achieve for themselves. They thought they had achieved it through following their list of rules. Paul says if anyone had a shot at achieving righteousness, it was, it was him, not them. But he says he realized it was all worthless. He counted it all as loss in order to gain Christ. He forsook the futile pursuit of righteousness through his own efforts at obeying the law because he came to see the excelling surpassing value of Christ. And he was given then a real righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. And he looks toward that someday when he will be raised with Christ. Okay, and then that's the introduction. All of that brings us to verse 12. The introduction is probably not a good measure of how long we'll go this morning. Verse 12, he begins with, Right on the heels of all that, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. Paul says, I haven't obtained this. I haven't already received it. I haven't, I haven't laid hold of it, nor have I already been perfected. 
Isn't it interesting that on the heels of the last few verses where, where Paul's talking about giving up his own efforts to achieve righteousness, just wanting Christ and the righteousness he offers, right on the heels of that, Paul jumps in with this disclaimer. I don't know if that's the right word. I picture here Paul hitting the brakes or, or waving his arms, getting our attention, worried that we might misunderstand him. Verse 12 comes across as maybe a disclaimer or a clarification. He's saying, don't misunderstand me. What, I, what I've just written, I'm not saying I've already made it. I'm not saying I've fully attained this. I'm not claiming to be perfect. And I think we can, we can emphasize this point. It's such a big deal that he repeats himself in the next verse. In verse 12, he says, not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfected. And then in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself to have laid hold of this. Apprehended, laid hold. Why do you think Paul is stressing this? Because there were those in the church, those Judaizers, who claimed to have made it. They were holy, right? They were holy. They were in they had created their own path to righteousness, their own list of rules, and then checked those boxes. They were good. They didn't really sin, at least not sins that really matter. And I think the picture, uh, I, I think of the picture of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. They go up to the temple together, and while the tax collector stands far off with his eyes cast down, the text says he couldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. And he's beating on his chest and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee stands up front, looks toward heaven and says, you remember what he says? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. And that story ends, separate note, but that story ends uh, by, by telling us that one of those guys went away justified. And it wasn't the Pharisee. And so what's happening here is Paul is concerned that the, that the Philippians, his readers, don't think that he has ended up in the same place as these false teachers. That he's given this great memorable discourse presenting the true way to God, but irony of ironies, he's, he ends up claiming to be righteous too, that he's made it. Just like the Judaizers. Paul says, no, I'm not there yet. I haven't made it. So Christ is the way, the only way. Forsaking our efforts and turning to Jesus in faith is the path. We're now in him and we depend on a righteousness that comes not from our own works, but from him, from God through faith. But that's not to say we're perfect. That's not to say we're done. We've made it. Kick back. We've gotten in the lifeboat bound for heaven and we're good. Hold that in your mind for a minute, and let's just continue in the text. So as we've seen, Paul says twice something like, I haven't already obtained or laid hold of this. And you perhaps already noticed that in both cases, he follows that with the same words, I press on. In verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or already been perfected, but I press on. And in verses 13 and 14, brothers, I don't count, consider myself to have already laid hold of this, but one thing, and then there's a bunch of words in there, but one thing, and the one thing is the next verse, I press on again. What do you think that means, I press on 
it's not Sunday school, so you, you can't shout out things. There's in these, in these verses, maybe you've already seen this a little bit, there's an ongoing metaphor that may or may not be really evident in your translations. There are a number of words here that have connotations related to like running a race. The term translated here as press on is the word for pursuing something, to chase after. Actually, side note, in most of the instances, most, like 70% of the instances where this term appears in the New Testament, it's translated as persecute. Now, that's driven contextually, but you get the idea that how persecute means pursuing, hunting someone. That's the word. When Paul right here in verse 6 says he's, he's persecuted the church, up there in verse 6, that's the same word. It's the exact same word. The verb means to chase, to pursue, to hunt, perhaps. But not just that term. When he says, I press on that I may lay hold of, that term lay hold of is used three times in these verses. The word fits well with pursuing because it means catching. It's like you're, you're chasing someone in a race and you overtake them. Those are the two terms, chasing and overtaking, pursuing and catching. You're hunting prey and you, and you capture it. There are a couple more words that, that lend to this metaphor, and we'll get to those. But you start to get the picture, I hope. Paul says that he's still running. He keeps on pursuing. So he hasn't already made it. He's not at the finish line. He hasn't laid hold of the prize we see in a minute. But he's pressing on. He's still pursuing. He's still running. And Paul indicates in verse 13, this is his single-minded focus. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have already laid hold of this, but one thing. There's just, most translations say this one thing I do. There's just two tiny Greek words, but and one, the number one, but one. I haven't already made it, but here's the one thing I focus on. Here's the one thing I do. And it's pressing on, pursuing, running. Now, you might look after that one thing in verse 13, and you might think that Paul wasn't very good with numbers because he seems to list maybe three things. Uh, but you can see, even in the English, how I press on at the beginning of verse 14 is the main verb. And the two things preceding it are dependent clauses. Uh, we won't turn this into an English class, but you can see how they have ing, they're participles. So Paul's one thing is pressing on, he, he's pursuing. The two, the two phrases... Before this, add some detail that's, I think, helpful. He says, forgetting the things behind, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to the things ahead. So he forgets what's in the past, and he looks forward. He reaches out for what's ahead. I wonder, when you hear that part of the text, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you hear forgetting those things that are behind? What do you think Paul is choosing to forget what's he what's he choosing not to think about well one thing we could consider is that he's talking about his past failures sin a few verses earlier he reminded us very clearly that he was a persecutor of the church in first timothy one paul is writing there and he says he calls himself a blasphemer a persecutor and insolent opponent and a couple verses later he says christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Consider Paul's past sins. He killed people, or he was at least very much complicit in the killing of, of Christians. And not just his pre-conversion life, but, but right here, as we've already been seeing, he's bluntly saying, I'm not perfect. 
Paul isn't claiming to be sinless even now. And so it would seem that we have warrant to say that, that Paul is forgetting about his past failures, his sin. He doesn't dwell on past sin. God has forgiven those. He's been telling us that he, that he relies on Christ's righteousness, not his own. He's not wallowing in the guilt of his sin. And I think we, we all hopefully can feel the relevance of that. We all know what that's like, dwelling on our sin failures because we have lots of them, letting the guilt of our sins kind of paralyze us. Yet has not God forgiven those sins? And not just perhaps the sins of our pre-conversion life. I don't know if you were saved as an adult or a child. Maybe you had a life uh, prior to Jesus that was full of sin. But our sins from yesterday, because, because you sinned yesterday. Do you struggle with wallowing in those sins, even after you've turned back to God? Aren't they forgiven? Are you tempted to wallow in the guilt rather than glory in the forgiveness and cleansing? If we're going to keep pressing on, we must forget, not think about, choose not to think about our past sins. God says that he has. Hebrews 8, 12, which quotes Jeremiah 31, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. And Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Our hope is Christ's righteousness, not our own. We glory in God's forgiveness and Christ's righteousness, which we accept by faith. This is what Paul's talking about. Wallowing in the guilt of sin is yet more evidence of that human inclination to save ourselves. It exposes that we think it depends on our own righteousness, our own performance. We have to earn it, and we're failing to do so. Not just Paul's past failures, his sins, perhaps even more so in this context, we would understand Paul to be referencing his past successes or his achievements. We've already seen verses four through six, where Paul lists all his credentials and achievements and his commitment level as a Jew. He worked hard. He worked harder than everyone. But what about his work for the Lord after salvation? What about all the churches he planted? What about his legit fame within the church? What about his acknowledged apostleship and authority? his having written inspired scripture. None of us have those kind of claims on our, uh, on our resume. What about his visions and direct revelation from God? So for some of you, that makes you think of 2 Corinthians 10 through 12. It's a very interesting passage. And you don't have to turn there, and I will only say a, a few things about it. But in those chapters, Paul's defending his ministry to the Corinthians against critics and false teachers. He keeps saying, they're really interesting. He keeps saying in those, I speak as a madman. You're making me talk crazy because he has to keep saying, uh, to defending himself. He says in chapter 11, but whatever, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, and he goes on. 
In chapter 12, then, he talks about the visions he's received. And you might remember that he ends, that's the passage that ends with discussing his thorn in the flesh. Hebrews 12, 7, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. In any case, here in Philippians 3, I think we also have reason to think that Paul is at least equally talking about forgetting his past successes, his, his, his victories, his, his pedigree, his reputation, especially in light of his concern about those who considered themselves righteous, these Judaizers. The ruinous arrogance of that works-based self-righteousness. And I think we can all see that danger for ourselves as well, right? Pride. Maybe you won the Christian Character Award when you were in eighth grade. I didn't. I don't have that on my resume. Uh, maybe you were class president at your Christian college. You, maybe you went to seminary. You're a deacon. You're an elder. You led someone to Christ once. Your marriage has lasted. People look up to you. You don't really sin that much at least not in the bad ways, not sins that really matter. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Forgetting the things behind, there's a real danger to us of dwelling on the past and that causing us to stop pressing on, whether it's, whether it's the side of things where we're wallowing in the guilt of our manifold failures, which threatens to paralyze us, or reveling in the pride of self-righteousness, which would ruin us. So not looking to the past, he says, forgetting those things that are behind, but rather reaching forward to what's ahead. The term here translated reaching forward, I'm not sure what your translation says, but it's another that fits with this running and race metaphor. So, so two illustrations that might be helpful um, one dumb one and then, and then one more useful one. So a couple of months ago, um, I blame Greta. We had the misfortune of coming across some videos online of a sport called chase tag. We should put sport in, in air quotes. Now this wasn't parents recording their children at recess. That would have been more forgivable. This was grown men, at least physically grown. Not, not I don't know about mentally. Apparently, it aired on TV at some point. These were like real real recordings, a, a show. And so there are two men, the quick summary, there are two men. One chases the other within this like bounded area, and it's full of obstacles, monkey bars, things like that. One trying to ta tag the other, and he's trying to catch him within like a 20-second, some time limit. The other guy's trying to stay alive for that long. In any case, you can perhaps imagine the chase, and as the one guy gets closer to the other, you can picture him reaching out to make the tag. Perhaps he stretches out, he leaves his feet to tag the other guy. Maybe a better picture. So we've all probably watched the Olympics at some point. And like all good people, we, of course, prefer the Summer Olympics, not the Winter Olympics. It's no real sports in there. Maybe hockey. But you've seen a sprint right? Let's say the 100 meters, it only lasts about 10 seconds. And you've seen races where a few of the runners are neck and neck as they come to the finish line. And what do all the runners do? They do, they do that lean, right? There's probably a word for that in running. I am proud to say I don't know what it is. They do that lean to try to cross the line first. Their arms go backwards, their chest goes forward. That's a good picture, I think. Reaching forward. Some translations will say 
straining, stretching forward to what's before. This is what Paul says his pressing on is like. He puts the past out of his mind. How can remembering past sins or past successes help us? And he looks ahead. He strains for what's ahead. This is how we run. One more comment on this uh, before we move on, just, just in case you're not quite sure yet. So perhaps you've already thought of the other passage where similar, actually more explicit running and race terminology is used. It's Hebrews 12, 1 and 3. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but you know it well, probably. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets or entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Don't we have in this Hebrews text at least echoes of a similar dynamic? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. That feels like forgetting what's behind. And then let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Feels a little bit like looking toward what's before us, what's ahead, reaching out for what's ahead. Now, before we look at the last part of verse 14 and conclude, let's admit that there is maybe some difficulty in these verses. Um, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you're used to it and, and you gloss over it. But there's, there's some difficulty. All this talk of running and of pressing on and pursuing, trying to seize something, straining forward, it sounds a lot like effort. There's a lot of action verbs that, and, and, and they more than hint at like work, at doing, and not just that you have something to do, but that you should strive, sweat, labor, striving and straining. Think of what it's actually like to run. Maybe there are some runners here, but for those of us who are normal and want to be happy, run, running is kind of the worst, at least running for the sake of running. I mean, it's good to be healthy, but at what cost? How, how is it okay that Paul says all this? And of course, what I mean is how in light, even of the immediate context of not my efforts, not my own righteousness, but Christ, Christ, Christ. How does Paul then follow that up with these verses about pursuing and straining to lay hold of something. How does this mesh with salvation, not by works, but by grace through faith? This paradox, for lack of a better word, is at the very heart of true Christianity, isn't it? And there's many places we could go and many verses that lean into this and address it. But let's try to address it just a little bit from right here in Philippians. Because Paul is everywhere and always mitigating against a works-oriented Christianity, isn't he? So first, you maybe noticed that there's a part of verse 12 that I haven't mentioned yet. Paul says, not that I have already obtained or I've already been perfected, but I press on. We already saw that, but he goes on to say, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Paul says he's pursuing in order to get to lay hold of something. And he says, it's the thing that Christ has laid hold of him for. The phrasing is tough. Um, and you see the, the wordplay here, laid hold of, is used twice. 
The thing that Paul is pursuing is the very thing that Christ saved him for. To juggle the word order, maybe it's more helpful. He says, Christ laid hold of me. He saved me. And from the surrounding context, he's given to me and promised to me righteousness and resurrection and heaven. And this is what I'm pursuing to lay hold of. I'm pursuing to get what Christ already intends to give to those who are his, like me. He's saved me for it. He's promised these things. He's laid hold of me with this intention. That's the thing that I'm pursuing. Do you see, I don't want to take too much time. Do you, do you see how that helps? It sends you in the right direction to try to deal with the by, by grace through faith versus all these commands to work and pursue. One other thing that I think is even more direct let me ask you to look at one other sentence. It's two verses here in Philippians, uh, which is rightfully celebrated because it addresses this. And it's, of course, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, but also much more in my absence. And here it comes. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to do, to work for his good pleasure. So that's a command, work out your own salvation. Yikes. Now it doesn't say work for your own salvation, but either way, that is a, that's a tough command. But it's immediately followed, right, by because it's God who works. It's God who works in you, both to will, desire, and to work. It's actually the word work again for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation because it's God who works in you. Work because God is already working. God is working, giving both the desire to do and the doing itself. Let's conclude by looking at the last part of these verses, which is the, the second half of verse 14, the rest of verse 14. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of prepositional phrases. We have two more terms here that fit in with the running picture. Goal means the target you're aiming at. And erase, it means the finish line. And of course, prize, the, the award that goes to the winner. And we see that Paul describes the prize as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this is what awaits Paul at the end, at the finish line. This is what he's pursuing. This is what he's pressing on to lay hold of. He doesn't have it yet, but he's pursuing it all the way to the end. What do you think he's talking about? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I expect for most of you, especially with this translation of upward call, upward calling, your mind probably goes to something like heaven, the end, our eternal destiny. And let me, let me give two reasons, and this is, this is the conclusion. Let me give two reasons why I think that's the right answer. It's the right idea. First, remember that the last paragraph ended with talking about the resurrection. Paul says that he considers everything else to be worthless. He's given it all up for the sake of gaining Christ and gaining the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. And the climax of that is verse 11, if 
by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I've, I've considered everything worthless that I would have Christ instead, and that I would have the righteousness that he gives, and that ultimately, just like Christ suffered and died and was raised, so too I would, in the end, be raised. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead as the first fruits of all believers. And we long to, we expect to be like him in his resurrection. This is the believer's ultimate hope, isn't it? The believer's hope is that final day when Christ returns, when we are raised to new life, to glory. So, just prior to our verses here, we have Paul already drawing our attention to, to the end, the final resurrection that he longs for. But the second bit of evidence comes from just after our verses. Look at verse, starting in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many of whom I have told you often, he's talking about the bad guys again, many of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even with weeping, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to ev even to subdue all things to himself. So our verses here, 12, 12 through 14, are essentially bookended by Paul pointing his readers to the end, to the day of Jesus Christ, as he calls it a few times in the letter. And in Philippians, that day is described in, in various ways. It's, we already saw in chapter 1, verse 6, it's when his good work in us is finally completed. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, it's when we are pure and blameless and overflowing with the fruition of righteousness, which is from Jesus Christ. Later in chapter 1, verse 23, when we are finally with Christ, which is far better. It's that day when, chapter 2, every knee finally bows and every tongue finally admits that Jesus is Lord. In verse 11 here in Philippians 3, as we just saw, it's when we are resurrected. Resurrected to new and glorious bodies like Christ's, verse 21. It's when we go to the place of which we are true citizens, our true home. It's when the Savior who we are awaiting and longing for, finally appears and finally and fully saves us. Surely this, the day of the Lord and all that it entails, is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Surely this is the finish line. This is the prize that Paul is looking forward to and running toward. So that's it. Paul is saying in these verses, I haven't made it yet. My salvation isn't fully completed. I'm not perfect. I haven't laid hold of all that God intends, but I'm pursuing. I'm chasing. I'm running toward that goal to get that prize in the end. I'm forgetting what's behind me. I'm not dwelling on the guilt of my failures that threaten to drown me, nor reveling in the self-righteousness that would ruin me. 
but I'm looking ahead. I'm stretching forward toward that day. I'm looking up toward Jesus, longing and pressing on to finally and fully lay hold of him and all that he brings with him. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these few minutes this morning. And we know it takes time for you to drive your word into our hearts. I pray that you would do good work through your word in our hearts today. Amen.